hey, why don't you come to church with me? Our pastor opens the Bible. He doesn't share his opinion. He preaches from the Word of God. No, thank you. And you say, no, 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 no. And eventually God gives you your wish. So in John 12, Jesus describes those who would not believe. And so they came to the place where they could not believe. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of Jonah, and the life and message of Jonah is far more than just a fish tale. It's more than a miraculous story. The signs that God gives have purpose, and that purpose is to point people to Jesus Christ as the Savior. But let's join Dr. Brogy as he explains that people should not merely look for a sign. But he said to him, if they do not listen to the Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the Bible, if they won't listen to the scriptures, to the Tanakh, to the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded even if someone comes from the dead. So Jesus makes it very clear that if someone will not believe God's word, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. They will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And so Jesus shoots straight up with these guys in verse 39. Notice, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He condemned their seeking after a sign. Why? Because he was already authenticated through the miracles he had done. And that's all they needed, not to mention the scripture itself. Now, on occasion, God grants signs to those who are weak in faith, but they are not opposed to the living God. But to reason that somehow if I had a miracle, I would believe it's just not true. In fact, there's coming a time when Jesus will reign and rule on the earth for a thousand years. And tribulation saints who enter into the millennial reign of the Messiah in their natural body will have children and grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren who will live for nearly a thousand years. Some of their children won't believe. Even with Jesus ruling and reigning, and that's one of the functions of the millennial reign of Messiah. If you were with us in our study of the Revelation, we went for six reasons for the millennial reign of Christ. And one reason is it shows just how fallen we are by nature. But faith doesn't come from miracles. They've got Moses and the prophets. Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so to ask for a sign was a mark of unbelief. They were basically committing spiritual adultery. God likens his relationship to the Jewish people as he being the groom and their being the bride. The same imagery in the New Testament. And when they wandered away, they were committing spiritual adultery. And that's where these men were. Nothing Jesus could have done could have convinced them. So there's one sign left. Did they commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit on this day? Absolutely not. Don't miss that. Because if they had committed it, there would be no need for a sign. It would already be too late. But it wasn't too late. They had one more sign. And by the way, some Pharisees did respond. Read Acts 15. So notice... He describes the sign of Jonah and he defines it in verse 40. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign of Jonah was being three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. Three days and three nights. And so he is an illustration of what the Lord Jesus is going to do. Now, some people say, well, when Jonah was in the mouth of the great fish, he died. Very few expositors teach that, but a few guys that I admired, like J. Vernon McGee, he taught that, much to my surprise. He went to Dallas Seminary, as I did as well, but I think he was just wrong on it. And his argument was, if you have read him, is, well, if he didn't die, then how is it really an illustration of Christ being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Well, certainly there's no type, no illustration that has a perfect correlation. Isaac is up on top of Mount Moriah, and the New Testament definitively says in Hebrews 11, he was a type of Christ. But did he die? Of course not. He was as healthy as a horse. Now, he was as good as dead. Abraham was ready to plunge the knife in his heart, but he didn't die. Neither did Jonah die. We saw him praying in the mouth of the great fish. He's very much alive. And even if he had died, it wouldn't be a perfect correspondence because even if he had died in the mouth of the great fish and then came back to life, he would have come back to life in his, resur- in his uh, normal natural body. And Christ is the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. But he was as good as dead. And so the parallel between Jonah and between Christ is clear. Three days and three nights. By the way, I think we should pause here. Let me run down a rabbit trail without getting too far offhand. People will say, well, how is it? Three days and three nights. Does that mean Jesus was in the tomb for 72 hours? And some conclude that. Some conclude that Jesus died on Wednesday and that he was raised from the dead on Saturday evening, before Saturday night, before the the day started. Um, I don't think so. Now, most of the people who have actually put forth those suggestions have been cultists, like uh, Worldwide Church of God, and sadly, some Christians have adopted it thinking it was right. But it's important for us to know that the way a Jew reckons a day is very different from the way we might reckon a day at this time in human history. Number one, a Jewish day does not start at midnight like our day does. We really follow the the Roman Gentiles. A Jewish day, as most of you know, started in the evening. And so Sabbath always begins at sundown. And so in the days of creation, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. Secondly, the way a Jew reckoned a day was different from the way we reckon a day. Any part of a day could could be considered a whole day. By the way, they do the same thing with years. If a king ruled for 14 months and one month was in this year and then 12 months in this year and one month in the next year, then it was said that he reigned for three years. And there's documentation of that not only within Scripture but outside of Scripture. So these people who are looking for errors in the Bible, they're just ignorant. They, they, they just don't know what God has written in Scripture. Well, in the same way, any part of a day is reckoned as a whole day. Now, in Mark 15, 42, we are told that Jesus died the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. So he dies on Friday. Now, of course, the women wanted to anoint the Lord Jesus after he had died, but his body had already been taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and placed in a tomb. So they have to wait 
until Sunday morning because it would be inappropriate for them to anoint him during the time of the Sabbath. So John records in John 20 and verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning. Notice on the first day of the week, that is Sunday. And it's significant because the gospel says that Christ died and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And so the scripture predicted that the Messiah would rise on the third day in such passages like this. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so the Son of Man. And it forces us who are not familiar with Jewish days to ask a question. Well, how do we get that he rose on the third day? Because he dies on Friday, what time? 3 p.m. He's in the tomb before Sabbath starts on Saturday evening. That's day one. He's in the tomb Friday night through Saturday evening. That's day two. And then between Saturday night and early Sunday morning, he walks out of the grave. The angel rolls the stone away, not to let him out, but to show that he is gone. And so a day and a night can represent a whole day. And you know that not only from the way Jesus describes his own resurrection in another text, but when you let Scripture interpret Scripture and you look at even sources outside of Scripture. For instance, Queen Esther, most of you know her. She decides to go in and to see King Ahasuerus at the risk of her own life. So she asked Mordecai and all her fellow Jews to pray and to fast. Let me read to you from Esther 4.16. She says, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then two verses later, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. It came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She asked them to pray three days, but on the third day, before it was completed, she approaches the king. Why? Because a part of a day can represent an entire day. King David, jot down this verse, 1 Samuel 30. 1 Samuel 30, 12 and 13. By the way, you should write these down. You're going to be asked. You say, I'm not going to be asked. If you're not going to be asked, it tells me you're not discipling people. <laughs> it tells me you're not engaged in people. If you're never asked a question from the Bible, it, it just you're telling on yourself. You're living in disobedience. King David found an Egyptian in a field who had testified he had, quote, not eaten or drunk for three days and three nights. And then the man in the next breath will say, I fell sick three days ago. Three days and three nights. It's a Jewish idiom where a part of a day can represent an entire day. Uh, there's a rabbi, very famous rabbi, who is recognized to this day for his writings by Orthodox Jews, Rabbi Azariah. He writes these words in 100 A.D., a day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. A day and a night make a whole day, and a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus made this statement in addition to the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote, Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day. Not after three days, on the third day. Why? Because a part of a day can make a whole day. Is this how Jesus understood it? Absolutely put out next to three days and three nights with the sign of Jonah, Luke 9, 22. This is an important statement. The Son of Man, he wrote, 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised, how? Up on the third day. Now, I know that was a little rabbit trail, but it was an important rabbit trail because it's a question that many of us will ask at one time or another. And so Jesus said, you're going to be given a sign. And it's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah came out of that great fish alive, and none of the Pharisees denied that. They believed that was a real miracle that took place on this prophet of God. Even so, the Son of Man is literally going to die, and he is going to come back to life. In fact, the very sign that Jesus is going to give them as the last and final sign to give them an opportunity to believe, meaning they haven't committed blasphemy of the Spirit yet, they help orchestrate. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. From their very act of asking for the crucifixion, nailing him to the cross, and many died. But then he was raised and they were given an opportunity. Now, understand, they should have repented on this day, but they didn't. And to further drive home their hardness of heart, he gives two illustrations, and with that, we'll be done. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They repented at Jonah's preaching, but Jerusalem would not preach at the preaching of Jesus. Yet Jesus is greater than Jonah. He is greater than Jonah in that while both were prophets and both preached truth, both were men, Jesus was more than a man, Jesus was the God-man. He's greater than Jonah in that while Jonah almost died, Jesus did die. While Jonah uh, preached about forgiveness of sin, but out of a heart of not compassionate, hoping that God would destroy the Ninevites, Jesus preached forgiveness of sin, even praying for his enemies from the cross. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Praying and earnestly hoping that people will repent. Jonah, he goes outside the city waiting for judgment to fall. Jesus goes outside the city praying for salvation to come in the hearts of those unbelievers. There's a million ways in which the Lord Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jonah, the son of Amittai. He has a cold, indifferent heart, but we're not done with him yet. God is still at work. Look at the second illustration that he gives. I mean, if these Ninevites could, could repent and believe on the message that Jonah gave, they didn't see any miracles. You say, didn't they see Jonah come out of the fish? No, as far as we know, they didn't. Maybe, maybe they heard about it, but we don't know that they knew that. Remember, he's dropped off on the shore and he still has to go some miles to get all the way to Nineveh. They don't see the kinds of miracles that these people saw done through Jesus. They don't come to the assessment that Nicodemus does. No one could do these miracles unless God were with them. 
And yet they repent. They believe. So they'll stand up in the judgment and they'll condemn the unbelieving Jews. I thought all judgment was given to God. It is. But in the sense they can condemn them because if they could believe with the little amount of revelation they were given, then these Jews should have believed with the great amount of revelation. Second illustration, verse 42. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I mean, think about the queen of Sheba right out in the margin, 1 Kings 10. Go home and read the chapter. It describes her encounter. She, like the Ninevites, were real historical people. And so for Jesus to liken them as historical people to Jonah, he described Jonah as a real historical person swallowed by a real fish. And so remember, your argument is not with me, it's with Jesus. But here is this woman from the Arabian Peninsula who travels to the ends of the earth, which would be considered about 1,200 miles And she comes and she listens to the words of Solomon and she looks at the worship of the Jewish people and she falls on her face and she says, Jehovah Yahweh, he is God. If she could repent with that small amount of revelation that she had been given, all the more should these Jews have repented. And so her action will condemn all of the unbelievers of of the coming day. So how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me suggest a couple of applications as we close off our time. Um, First, let's ask this question. Is it possible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin? Is it possible for a Christian to commit the unpardonable sin? The simple, plain, indisputable biblical answer is absolutely not. Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified, saved by faith, we have peace with God. Not the peace of God, that's experiential, but here he's speaking peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin because you have peace with God. This grace in which you stand, he'll go on to explain. You are justified It doesn't simply mean just as if you never sinned, but it also has the idea just as if you had always obeyed, you are credited with the righteousness of God. There's an exchange that takes place when you call upon Christ for salvation. He credits you with his righteousness. He deems you a saint. And that can never be erased. It can never be undone. The spirit of God is given as the earnest, as the down payment. And Jesus said, when he comes to live in you, he'll be in there forever. You cannot be unborn again. And so Paul will begin Romans 8 with the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. And then he ends the chapter with these words. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case you think I missed something, nor any other created thing. And that includes you because you were created. There is nothing that exists that has not been created by God. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you can name something that's not covered in those categories on this list, you come up after this service and I will give you $1,000. But you cannot. Don't waste your time. 
It is impossible for a true born-again child of God to commit the unpardonable sin. Not to mention you wouldn't want to. Second, is it possible for an unsaved person to commit the unpardonable sin? And the absolute definitive answer is yes. Now some are confused because they think the Pharisees committed it in their day. They didn't commit it in their day. The Lord was still reaching out. I'm still going to give you one more chance. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection, which is God's declaration that Jesus is Lord. So let's think about, again, the nature of this sin for a moment. When the leaders rejected John the Baptist, they were rejecting God the Father who had sent John the Baptist. When they were rejecting God the Son, they were rejecting God's second witness. And then when did the Spirit of God come? He came at Pentecost. And when he, the Spirit of God, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when someone rejects the Spirit of God speaking to their heart over and over and over and over again, they close their spiritual eyes to truth. They pluck them out, and they will end up committing a sin that cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. To reject the Lord Jesus with little information is bad, but to willfully reject the testimony of the Spirit of God is absolutely fatal. Now, some again would say that this cannot be replicated because Jesus Christ is not physically present. But listen, this was a sin that was going to be committed after Pentecost. They still were going to be given one final sign. The resurrection, and that brought the Spirit. I'm going to send the Father, and I'll send the Spirit. Now, people can blaspheme God and say there's no God, or God's evil, or he hates us. People can blaspheme Christ and say he's a false prophet. He's fictitious. But when they speak against the Spirit of God, they are speaking against their only hope. Because Jesus said no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. We are warned in Genesis 6, my spirit shall not always strive with men. No one has ever become a Christian apart from the work of the Holy Spirit because by nature we're opposed to the things of God. And so the Spirit of God works on your life and he convicts you of sin and shows you the guilt and the shame of it, but you say, I don't care. And you harden your heart. Or he comes and someone reaches out to you and, and they say, you know, you really need the Lord Jesus and the forgiveness he can offer you. You say, I'm not interested. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? Our pastor opens the Bible. He doesn't share his opinion. He preaches from the word of God. No, thank you. And you say, no, 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 no. And eventually God gives you your wish. So in John 12, Jesus describes those who would not believe. And so they came to the place where they could not believe. Joseph Alexander, a great theologian from Princeton at a time in the 1800s when it was still a Bible-believing seminary, wrote these powerful words. There is a time I know not when, there is a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. There is a line by us not seen, which crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's mercy and God's wrath. How far may we go in, how far may we go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope and where begin the confines of despair? 
An answer from the skies is sent. While it is called today, repent. Why? Because you can cross a line by rejecting the only one who will speak to your heart such that you will not to believe in Jesus and not to believe is to remain in eternal condemnation. We beg you, we plead with you, Paul said, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We don't just give people the information of the gospel. That's an education. Neither do we plead with them to receive Christ without any information. That's emotionalism. We take the truth of Scripture and we plead with men, today is the day of salvation. Make a decision because tomorrow may be too late. God brought some of us here within the confines of this message. You're either live streaming or you're listening it to on the radio after or at some other point in life. And God is calling you, today is the day of salvation. And if you keep saying no to the spirit of truth, no, I will not, you are calling him a liar. And you can cross a line where you have blasphemed him and you will never be saved. I have dealt with people in the 40 plus years I've been in ministry to receive Christ. And some people just kept saying no. And I think of one man in particular, and he died saying no. And they want me to preach his funeral. What, am I gonna preach him into heaven, not on your life? Am I gonna tell the grieving family down front that he's in hell? That won't accomplish anything. But I would tell what the rich man said in Luke 16, because if someone did die and go to hell, they wouldn't want your, their loved ones to be there with them. They'd want them to be in heaven. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for the prophet Jonah and how he became an illustration of the very resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray today for someone listening to this message who is not really sure of their salvation, help them to know that there's no such thing as neutrality, that we are either for Jesus or against him. We either gather, gather or we scatter. Father, help them in simple childlike faith, knowing that Jesus paid for all of our sin, bearing all of its wrath, being declared, Lord, when you raised them from the dead, help them in simple faith to say, Lord Jesus, Save me and change me. And Father, for those of us who have made that decision, may we never be ashamed of the gospel. And if our heart is cold and indifferent to trying to bring people into the kingdom, to gather people for Christ's name's sake, may we repent of that sin today and get our hearts right. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The Bible tells us that it is possible for those who choose not to believe to come to a place where they cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put off the decision to accept the free gift of salvation. If you would like more information on salvation and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and click on Would You Like God as Your Friend? And to listen again to today's message, go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the Messages button 
or give us a call at 877-787-7478 and request program JNH5, which is available on CD or DVD. And don't forget, you can always use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll begin a new message in our series from the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.